Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. We do this because the scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so since we all continue to sin on a regular basis, it's important to keep short accounts to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready to grow and concentrate as we study God's Word. So we'll uh, have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure you're ready to study tonight, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize that all that we have is yours and our entire life is to serve you and our purpose in life is to grow to spiritual maturity that you might be glorified in and through our lives. Father, we are witnesses not only to those around us, but we are also witnesses in the great conflict that surrounds history known as the angelic conflict or spiritual warfare and that we live our lives on a day-to-day basis in light of this conflict, looking to the future when you eventually will uh, conquer evil and defeat Satan and you will bring in a perfect kingdom when Jesus Christ returns. So, Father, we look forward to that time and as we continue to study the outline of the future events in the book of Revelation, we pray that we might recognize that this isn't just about the future but Our understanding of the future helps us to focus our spiritual lives today in preparation for the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have been studying in the book of Revelation, and we are entering into a little different section here tonight, and that is as we move from the events of chapter 11 to the events of chapter 12. And the chapter break actually takes place at a bad spot. It should take place in the last verse of chapter 11. So open your Bibles with me to 1119. 11.19. Now what we've seen is that the basic breakdown of the chronology of the tribulation period 
involves three series of judgments, a series of seven seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment opens and reveals seven trumpet judgments. The seven trumpet, the seven, excuse me, the seventh trumpet blows and reveals the last series called bowl judgments. That's the basic layout of the tribulation period. So if you can remember the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, you have a pretty good handle on what's going on in the tribulation period. Because we won't be here, we don't have to worry about it from that perspective, but it's important for us to know these things because as we come to an understanding of what happens during the tribulation period, we see that what God is doing in history all drives to that final element. Uh, that final seven-year period when he brings to a resolution the problems, the conflicts that have gone on for centuries all the way back to the fall of Adam in the garden and especially what we see resolved during the seven-year tribulation period is the conflict that has occurred between Satan on the one hand and Israel on the other hand, the descendants of Abraham. Because if you go back into Genesis chapter 12, you see that in the context, and this is really important for understanding some of the things that are going to happen in the next few chapters. In the context of the rebellion that was uh, initiated by Nimrod at the Tower of Babel, the world unites against God Rather than scattering after the judgment of the Noahic flood, there is a uh, the people gather together under the leadership of Nimrod, basically shaking their fists at God and saying, rather than scattering on the earth and and filling the earth, we're going to build cities for ourselves and we're going to build our own towers. And there's a theological rationale behind the towers that they're going to build these places as areas of protection they can flee to. If God ever sends a flood again, they can get above the waters. It's rather silly, we might think, but that's sort of the idea. There's a clear element there that they are going to make a name for themselves, the Scripture says in Genesis chapter 11. So in the light of this rampant rejection of God that infects the entire human race, God comes and he calls out one individual through whom he is going to bless all of the nations. And he promises to Abraham that he, God, is going to make Abraham's name great. In contrast to the people, the vast majority who are out there trying to make their name great on their own in rebellion against God. And so as we see this conflict occurring, this contrast between Babel or Babylon on the one hand and the work of God through Abraham and the seed of Abraham on the other hand. And Babylon becomes the picture in the Old Testament of the seat of man's desires in rebellion against God and the descendants of Abraham establish themselves at in Jerusalem, in the promised land, and they are the ones who are going to be blessed by God. So that leads to this conflict between Jerusalem and Babylon. Now, when we get into the end stages of the tribulation period, we see that man, mankind has reestablished and rebuilt 
a literal Babylon that has become an economic seat of power under the Antichrist kingdom during the tribulation period. And so there is once again this conflict between Babylon and Jerusalem. And the Antichrist is the world leader during the time of the tribulation, and he is the one who is leading the charge against God's people, the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, specifically the believing remnant of Jews during the tribulation period. And the chapter that really focuses on this is Revelation chapter 12. Now, when we study Revelation chapter 12, we're going to bring out a lot of these elements, many of which we've studied in detail in the past. But by studying chapter 12, we see that all these little loose ends and threads that appear here and there all through the Old Testament and teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and different things that are stated by Paul and others in the epistles, that all of these threads start being tied together. And sometimes if you start off way back in Genesis with certain facts and certain pieces of information, you're not sure if all you had was Genesis, you're not sure what's going on until you understand what is described in these next few chapters. So they tie these things together. I'll give you one example that we'll see in this chapter. And this example is that in the Garden of Eden, God has placed... Adam and Eve, and he has given them one prohibition that they can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see that covered in in, uh, Genesis chapter 2. And then in the beginning of chapter 3, all of a sudden we're introduced to this new creature, this new actor on the stage in the Garden of Eden, which is the serpent, Nahash, just the Hebrew word for serpent or snake. And the serpent is never directly identified in Genesis chapter 3 as Satan or the devil. There's no indication of that. Now, there is a trend, and I think it's a it's an unfortunate trend, and I think it's just one sign of the kind of academic arrogance that too often infects seminaries in different times. We see these trends go on. You can go back in the 19th century, early 20th century, see the same kinds of things happening with the influx of what was known as Protestant liberalism or European-German Protestant liberalism. But you see a few evangelical scholars now coming out and saying, well, you can't really say that that serpent in Genesis 3 was anything but a serpent because you have to interpret it totally with, with these blinders on that all you can do is understand it as an Israelite would have understood this at the when they're on the plains of Moab when Moses wrote uh, the Pentateuch in 1440, about 1445, 1446 BC. But they they so they're they're so fragmenting their study of the Bible that they lose the time-honored principle of biblical study, which is a comparison of Scripture with Scripture. Now, you can do weird things with trying to compare Scripture with Scripture just because you see a word used here and a word used there and another and the same word used somewhere else doesn't mean you can necessarily connect those dots. You have to look at certain patterns, but this isn't even a pattern like that. If you look at Revelation chapter, chapter 12, verse 9, 
You see the statement that, so the great dragon was cast out. See, all we're going to see up until from 1 to 8 is this great dragon. Now, a dragon is usually understood to be some kind of reptile, something on the order of a dinosaur. If you think about a dinosaur, they really don't look that different from certain depictions of dragons. In fact, there are many creationists who believe that the whole dragon mythology really is an uh is a outgrowth of real instances of of uh, sightings of dinosaurs at various times in uh, societies that didn't have the kind of writings and historical writings that we have today. They certainly didn't have cameras, but there are various depictions that we have been found in places in England and South America and other places of dragons that look remarkably like dinosaurs drawn obviously by men, which would indicate that human beings were alive at the same time these creatures were alive. So we have this dragon in verse 9. The dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. So that connects the dots for us right in that verse very clearly. You're not you know, meditating on your navel and trying to put this together. It's a very clear statement. But this trend that we have today in what's considered biblical scholarship is that, well, you can't go to a book written in A.D. 90 to define something that's written in 1445. And that's just silly when it's the inspired Word of God that gives us the interpretation of itself. And so we have to uh, be be careful not to be sucked up into these kinds of... of uh, academic arrogant trends that take place today. So that's just one example, though, of how a study of Revelation helps us to shed light on everything back to Genesis chapter 1 and helps us to put these things together to get a a bird's-eye view of what God is doing in human history. Now, the end of Revelation chapter 11, let me just go back to chapter 10 to help make sure you understand what's going on here. Chapter 10, John saw this mighty angel coming down from heaven, and in his hand there was an open little book. And he's told later in chapter 10 that he is to take the book and eat it, and it was sweet as honey in his mouth, but when it hit his stomach it was bitter. Now the picture there, as I pointed out, was that the eating of the book is the internalization and the assimilation of the message of the book. And it's sweet to the taste. And the book is going, contains the, the judgments that are described in chapters 11 through 14. And as many of us can attest in our own lives, that when we see real evil taking place or we see people who are truly evil, whether they are political leaders or whether they are business leaders, we pray that God will bring bring true justice into their lives, and sometimes we think that 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 really doesn't happen, and we have a uh, we have we're in good company there because David prayed in the Psalms. He said, "Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked uh, prosper?" And in this life, we often see that taking place. Well there will come a time when there will be judgment and those who have rebelled against God will truly feel the error of their ways and we think we look forward to that in great anticipation. There 
meeting of justice will be sweet, we think. That's the idea there, that the eating of the book is sweet. It's that sense that finally there will be judgment on evil. But when we actually witness what that entails during the tribulation period and the horror and the suffering that takes place on the earth as we witness that, it won't be a pleasant thing. And so that is the picture that as it comes into reality, as John eats it, it's sweet, but when it hits his stomach, it becomes bitter. And so he's told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. That's the content of chapters 12, 13, and 14, 11, 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 11 focused on the two witnesses who would come into Jerusalem and have their ministry there. I believe that occurs during the first half of the tribulation period. Then the scene shifts again in chapter 11, verse 15, where the as the seventh angel now sounds his trumpet, there is a scene in heaven where the, their voices are heard praising God, saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. It's anticipatory. It's looking forward to the culmination of this at the end of the tribulation period. Even as they're standing at the midway point, they can see that it's going to be finalized, brought to completion, and so they speak as if it's already occurred and they're standing there at the end of that three-and-a-half-year period. And then we cover the next three verses focusing on the the praise that is uttered by the 24 elders and those who are worshiping God. And then there's a break at verse 19, and we read, And, or then, the temple of God was opened in heaven. This shifts to the next scene. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Now, we have studied in the book of Hebrews in our Thursday night study, that there is a heavenly prototype of the temple. The word temple at its core meaning indicates a dwelling place for God. The naos, the temple, is a place where the gods dwelt or God dwelt. It describes the skene or tabernacle of the Old Testament, which the word skene means a dwelling place. And so the temple of God is a term that describes the inner uh, courtroom, the inner throne room of God, where God dwells, where God sits upon his throne. And so John looks up and he sees into the very throne room of God as he has before in chapters 4 and 5. And what he sees there is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this is not the earthly Ark of the Covenant that Moses made, we're told in Hebrews chapters 8 and 9, that what Moses built for the earthly tabernacle were copies or shadows of a heavenly reality. The shadows are referred to as a type, and we'll be studying that as we get in. I think we're studying that, that those very words related to type, uh, tupas, uh, hupadegma, a shadow or, or pattern, uh, in our study of, of Hebrews that we'll get into this coming this coming Thursday night. And so the earthly furniture, the altar of incense, and the ark specifically are mentioned as being part of the heavenly uh, temple. So here John sees the ark of his covenant, which speaks of his faithfulness 
and it speaks of his covenant with Israel. Because what was placed in the Ark of the Covenant was a copy of the Mosaic Law. So that's where the covenant, that's what the covenant in Ark of the Covenant refers to. And he sees the Ark of his covenant. Now, in the ancient world, it's not un, unlike a practice we have today, but if you were to enter into a contract, two copies of the contract would be made, and you would keep one, and one would go on file in the temple. And that was a standard practice, because the temple served as a place of banking. Nobody's going to violate the sanctity of a temple, so they stored money there, they stored legal documents there, because they were afraid that if they violated the sanctity of any temple, any pagan temple, then the gods would get after them. So they were rather superstitious about that, and so they considered that to be a very safe and secure place to store their treasures and to store their legal documents. And so this was a standard procedure in the ancient world, just as when you make a purchase or you um, have to file something with the with the city, you keep a copy, and a copy goes on file down at the city courthouse. If you get married, you get a copy. Of, you mail in your uh, marriage license, and they make a cop, register copy, file it, and then they stamp it and send it back to you. So they have a copy, and you have a copy. The same kind of thing is going on here. And this would be the location of God's copy of the Mosaic Law. One copy was put in the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle later in the Temple of Solomon, and one copy is placed in the heavenly Ark of the Covenant. And what that tells us is that suddenly the focal point is shifting to something related to God's plan and purposes for Israel. Now that's important to understand because in the Mosaic Law, God had made certain promises to Israel about the restoration to the land. In Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, he had outlined the various stages of discipline he would take the nation through if they rejected him and went after false gods. He did the same thing in Leviticus chapter 26 where we have the disciplinary action and some of the blessings and then there's promises following that related to their restoration to the land. And in those promises, God said, and when you are scattered among all of the nations... Now, their first scattering occurred uh, in two stages, one in 722 B.C. and the second one in 586 B.C. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians, and those people were deported and repopulated with other foreign people. That was the procedure of the Assyrian Empire. They would take native peoples out, scatter them throughout the empire, and then move other people into that area in order to prevent uh, the people from revolting against them. Then in 586, under Nebuchadnezzar, the southern kingdom was finally defeated and the temple was destroyed, and captives were taken from the southern kingdom back to Babylon. But the Babylonians didn't scatter the peoples they conquered, so most of the Jews in Babylon stayed together, and they had strong... Uh, colonies or strong areas within uh, Babylon where they were able to uh, maintain their 
uh, racial integrity. Now, it's likely that in many communities they did that as well, even though they were scattered among the Assyrians, but that's another another historical investigation. But when they returned from the Babylonian captivity beginning in 536, they came back just in dribs and drabs. The initial return was about 55,000, 50 to 60,000. And then there were two or three returns between uh, 536 B.C. and the return with Nehemiah in approximately 445 B.C. And, for, excuse me, 444 is when he gets the uh, command from Artaxerxes to go back. So it's, you have two or three stages where different people bring back different groups, but it's still not a large group, and the majority of them return from Babylon itself and not from all over the Egypt and the area we now know as Turkey and other areas like that. So still about half the Jews in existence during the period from the from 400 B.C. up to the time of Christ lived outside the land. They didn't all return. And then in 70 A.D., there is a second defeat of Israel and a second scattering occurs. Actually, the first scattering never fully ends, so you, often people trace the diaspora, Greek word for dispersion, where we get our English word dispersion. They often trace the diaspora from 586. And the Jews, even at the time of Paul, uh, first century, would refer to those that were scattered as the diaspora. That term is used, in fact, in 1 Peter chapter uh, chapter 1, when Peter is writing to those who are scattered, the 12 tribes scattered in the area of, uh, of northern Turkey. So God had made a promise to them that at one point he would return them from all the areas of the earth where he had scattered them. That's never happened. And so God still must fulfill that promise, even though the Mosaic Covenant itself has been abrogated and replaced by a new covenant. And so we see this picture occur here uh, related to the Ark of his covenant appearing in his temple, indicating that now we're going to focus on the fulfillment of those promises in the Mosaic Covenant. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and earthquakes and a great hailstorm. Now, aside from the hailstorm, the lightning and sound, thunder, and earthquakes occurred, indicating the presence of God and his action. The same kinds of phenomena occurred where? Exodus chapter 19 on Mount Sinai when God appeared to Moses and gave the Mosaic law. So the imagery that we have here in 1119 and what is going on here reminds us is 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 uh, intended to take us back to that giving of the law because the focus of the next chapter is going to be on Israel. And as I pointed out in our summary looking looking forward to these chapters, chapter 11 focused on God sending the two witnesses to Israel. Their focal point of their ministry is in Jerusalem. They are going to be executed by the Antichrist. Their bodies will be laid out in state so all the world can laugh at them, look at them, laugh at them, and ridicule them and rejoice. And there's a worldwide party and celebration like Mardi Gras 
all over the world to celebrate the death of these two witnesses, then God will resurrect them. He will give them resurrection bodies, bring them back to life, and then take them to heaven. And that occurs in Revelation chapter 11, verse 12. And at that same time, there's a great earthquake on the earth, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people are killed, and the rest, we're told, were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And I believe that's at the midpoint of the tribulation, and that is when the vast majority of these Jews in Jerusalem and Israel will turn to Jesus Christ as their Messiah and recognize that he is their Savior. And that makes sense in light of what is described in the coming chapter. And so this the imagery of 1119 is that God is moving. Now, it's unfortunate you have this chapter break there because in the original there's no... There's no shift there. You just read that the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. See, there's no break. It's in the context of this image of the ark of the covenant that a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Thus, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Now, let's just begin working through this. This is the first of seven personages that are introduced in this section. We've gone through the first part of Revelation, and we've seen that there are two series of judgments. There's a series of seal judgments and then a series of trumpet judgment. Then there's a pause in the action, which I think occurs at the end of those trumpet judgments. And then we're going to go back in time, and now we're going to get a scorecard. We're going to get, as it were, our program. You go to the ball game, you get a list of all the uh, the players on each team, and you get to keep track of how each player does as they play the game. You go to the opera, ballet, or the theater, and you're given a program so that you can see who the players are and learn a little something about the actors and actresses that are going to be on stage. Well, that's what happens beginning in Chapter 11. The first two people we're introduced to are the two witnesses. The third person that shows up on the scene is this, uh, is this woman, and she shows up, and then we're going to be introduced to the dragon, and then we're introduced to the first beast and the second beast, and we will be introduced to a few others along the way. So this is our program, identifying the key players during the tribulation period. Now, the verse begins by saying this is a great sign. Often we see the word sign and wonder appear together in, in, the, uh, in the text, but this is a sign, but it's not a wonder. And the difference is that when it's just a sign, it indicates that it is signifying something. You can see the parallel in our English words, sign and signify are sign and signify are cognates of one another. So a sign is designed to depict something through a particular image. And this sign is a woman and she's clothed with the sun. So she's pictured here in the uh, in the depiction on the screen. The illustration is just being brilliant and bright, difficult to look at, 
At her feet there's the moon. Upon her head there are these uh, twelve stars. Now she is the first of of um, five signs in this section of Revelation, the end part of Revelation. First, we're going to have the sign of the woman clothed with the sun in twelve one. Then in twelve three, we'll have the sign of the great red dragon. And then in the next chapter, we will see the signs plural of the second beast, whom we usually refer to as the false prophet. That's in chapters 13, verses 13 and 14. The words mentioned twice. And then again in chapter 19, verse 20, it refers to the signs of the second beast or the false prophet. So his signs are mentioned three times, which indicates something about the um, uh, the frequency and the presence of his signs or miracles that he performs. Fourth, we have another sign mentioned of the seven angels who come with the seven plagues related to the seven bold judgments in chapter 15, verse 1. And then we're told in 16, 14 that there are going to be these demons that come out of the mouth of Satan to gather all of the kings of the earth together for the final war of the great day of God the Almighty in chapter 16, verse 14, I don't think those demons will be visible on the earth, but their influence certainly will be uh, will be felt. So this is the first of five signs that are mentioned at the latter part of the book of Revelation. It appears in the heavens, so John is looking and he sees this image, and it is this image of this woman. Now we have to figure out who this woman is. Now, there have been various uh, guesses down through uh, church history as to who this woman is. Of course, those who are in Roman Catholic theology have tried to identify this woman as the Virgin Mary because in the um, in verse 4, she is going to give birth to a son. So this must be the Virgin Mary. But you can't make the other symbols fit anything in relationship to uh, in relationship to Mary, others have said that this is the church and tried to make this fit the church, but they usually have a uh, amillennial or postmillennial or a non-literal interpretation of, of prophecy. And the best interpretation is when we stick with the text and let Scripture interpret itself. And we have the same uh, images in another passage in Scripture, a mention of the sun, the moon, and the and 12 stars. And this is in the book of Revelation. In Revela- I mean Genesis, rather. Once again, we're going all the way back to Genesis, and Revelation ties these things together. Genesis tells a story at the end about Joseph and how God worked through Joseph to preserve the nation. Joseph was one of 12 brothers. These 12 brothers each became the heads of 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Genesis 37 down through Genesis 50 tells the story of how God preserves the nation through Joseph. And when he's a rather brash young man, God gave him a couple of dreams, and he made the mistake of telling all of his uh, brothers about these dreams, and it was obvious from the dreams, at least obvious to his brothers, that these dreams indicated that they were all going to bow down and worship Joseph, and they didn't like that idea because he's just their kid brother, and they don't have any respect for him, and they're a pretty nasty bunch. So Genesis 37.9 describes his second dream. 
Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now in this in this dream, it was clear that the son related to the, their father, uh, Isaac, or, um, excuse me, uh, Israel, also Jacob, known as Jacob, and their mother was, his mother was Rachel. So the sun and the moon would be uh, Jacob and Rachel, and the 11 stars were his 11 brothers, and they're all bowing down to him. Now, within the structure of Genesis, what, we've, what we saw when we studied that a few years ago is that God had made a promise to Abraham that, that Abraham, in your seed, all nations would be blessed. And it's important to track that word seed as you study Genesis. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God came back to them, and he made a promise to the, to, uh, to the serpent. Actually, he's addressing the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and he said uh, that the woman's seed would... Uh, that he would bruise the woman's seed on the heel, but the woman's seed would bruise him on the head. A bruise on the heel is not a fatal wound, but a bruise on the head, and that imagery would be a fatal wound. What he was indicating is that the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, is tracked through the book of Genesis, that's why you have those genealogies. You're tracking the seed, the descendant line of the woman, because it's through that seed that the serpent is going to be defeated. Now, what's going to happen in Genesis 12 is we're going to see the seed mentioned again, the seed of the woman. And we have this image of this woman. Who's the woman? It's Israel. And the seed of the woman is going to defeat the serpent. It's the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 uh, prophecy and fulfillment. So, Genesis 37:9 is depicting the family of Jacob as, as at that time, the present heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham and Sarah had one son, and that was Isaac. Isaac and his wife Rebecca had uh, twins. They had Jacob and Esau. Uh, Isaac was the promised seed to Abraham. Jacob was the promised seed to Isaac. And so you follow the line of the seed. And now it's down to Jacob and the 12 boys. And so it's clear from this passage that Joseph is going to be the one who receives the double blessing. And Joseph is the one that God is going uh, going to bless in that family. And so we have this original imagery here of the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, and this refers to Israel. It refers to God's promise to Abraham as fulfilled through, uh, through Jacob and his family. And so when we look at that image in uh, verse 1 and 2, this great sign, the woman clothed with the sun, the moon, her head crowned with the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel, and she's pregnant. She is with child. So this is looking back on the imagery here is that this woman is depicted as bringing into the world a particular child. And if you go back and you study certain scriptures in the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 7.14 
where there is a promise to Ahaz, who is the king of the northern kingdom at that time, that uh, he's worried because the northern kingdom has entered into an alliance with Syria, not unlike a problem you might have today if the Palestinians went into an alliance with Syria and were to attack the Jews that were in the land. It would be that same kind of scenario. And so the people in the southern kingdom of Judah were frightened because of this and that that the goal of the king of, of Israel at that time was to defeat the southern kingdom and to destroy the Davidic monarchy and to wipe out the Davidic kingship. And, of course, this was one of numerous attacks that I believe was inspired or engineered by Satan in the Old Testament to try to destroy the God's ability to fulfill the promised the promise of the promised seed. He had made a promise to David that the seed would come through David's line. And so the king of Judah, the king in the south, was the, always the descendant of David, and it was through that king that the Messiah would come. So this, this alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria was to wipe out and destroy the house of David. And now you come to Isaiah 7.14. Let's just hold our place here and turn there because this is important to understand this. Connect all these little dots for us. And then when we read Revelation 12, it means something a little more for us. Go to Isaiah 7.14. I mean 7.10. Let's start there. Now, verse 10, we read, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ask whatever you will. And Ahaz gets gets um, shows a lot of false humility here. He's not going to ask God for a sign. He says, oh, I'm not going to ask, nor will I test the Lord. See, this is pure arrogance on his part because God said to, to ask. And so God says in verse 13, he says, Here now, O house of David. Wait a minute. Before this, he was addressing, in the Hebrew, he's addressed Ahaz in singular pronouns. That's why study of the original language is important. Second person, singular, you. Now he's going to shift. He addresses the house of David. This isn't assigned to Ahaz. It is assigned to the house of David. And he says, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, not you, Ahaz, but y'all, the house of David, a sign. Behold, the virgin, did you hear what I said? The virgin, not a virgin, not just any old virgin, but the virgin, and it indicates that that was understood, that there was something already that probably God had revealed, but it's not recorded in Scripture. There was an understanding that that there was this promise related back to the woman, and now it's defined as the virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, the word that is used in the Hebrew for virgin here is the word alma. There's two words that are used in Scripture for a virgin in Hebrew, Alma and Betulam, there's a lot of debate over the meaning of these words. 
And in the back in the 1950s, when the Revised Standard Version came out, it was the Old Testament uh, translation was dominated by liberal theologians, and so they decided to translate this the young maid. The young maid will conceive and bear a son because they argued that Alma doesn't necessarily mean virgin. Now, there's two lines of evidence against this. There's actually more, but I'll just summarize it. Number one is that when the, when the Jewish rabbis in Alexandria in Egypt in the second century BC translated Isaiah into Greek, known as the Septuagint, they translated the Alma with the word Parthenos, which is the Greek word, a very specific word for virgin, which is where you get the noun Parthenon for uh, the temple of Athena in, in Athens, and that they understood that this was talking about a virgin. Second line of evidence, which is really simple, it's not much of a sign to say a young girl is going to get pregnant. Just think about it. I'm going to give you a sign. A young girl is going to get pregnant. Wow. That happens every day. For it to be a sign, it has to be something unusual, something miraculous, something, something strange. Furthermore, when you do a word study on the word Alma, in most cases it refers to an, a, a young, unmarried woman who has not been with a man. So virgin is an accurate translation of this phrase. Furthermore, when the Holy Spirit translates it, uses it in um, Luke, it uses Parthenos for virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So there's this Old Testament picture. Just think of this as the pipeline coming down from Genesis chapter 3, and it's sort of wide and broad at the beginning because it's just a vague promise. And as you get to Abraham and the promise narrows to the descendants of Abraham, and then later by the time you get down to Genesis chapter uh, 49, it's narrowed down to come from the tribe of Judah. And then as you come down to David, it narrows a little more to the tribe of David. And then you get down to, to Micah, and it's gonna be, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so there is this narrowing of the promise and the sign, but all through the Old Testament there is this assault that's made against the the, the woman that we see here in, in Revelation 12, which is Israel. There's this ongoing attempt by Satan to destroy the woman so that she can't give birth to this child. The woman, the nation Israel, the descendants of Egypt, giving birth to this child is what drives history from God's viewpoint all the way through the Old Testament. So when we look at this passage in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, that she's with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth, this is a an allusion to all of the suffering that Israel goes through because they've got a target on right on, painted on them for Satan to aim at to try to stop this and so all of the suffering all of the warfare all of the violence that occurs towards Israel during the period of the judges and later on it's all part of these labor pains of the woman before she finally gives birth to the child, who is clearly from the context, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So she's in labor. Now in verse 3, we'll be, we're introduced to the next sign. Then another sign appears in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, we have to address a couple of questions here. And the first question is rather easy to answer. The second question I've spent hours studying, and I'm still not sure what the answer is. The first question is, who is the dragon? That's clear from the context. The second question is a little more challenging to answer, and that is the question is to identifying the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, let me tell you what the bottom line is. I just don't know how to get from A to C, but I can tell you what A is is what the text says, that the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. I can tell you what C is, and that's what it means. I can't, I'm not sure what's in between right now. I'm still working on that, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that if we get there uh, tonight. If we don't, then maybe I'll have it figured out by next week. The, uh, the difficulty is, is that there are, among dispensationalists and among Bible scholars, there is a legitimate disagreement in the interpretation of this. Because in Daniel chapter 7, there is a picture of the final form of the Antichrist kingdom as being composed of ten nations and represented as ten horns. And then there's another horn that comes up that conquers three of them. And three from ten, I think, is seven. That's right. I'm not good at math, so that's right, isn't it, Jay? Three from ten is seven. So that's where you get this picture of seven and ten, and so uh, the conclusion from that approach is that this represents the final form of the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the Antichrist, that is empowered, energized by Satan at the end time. Now, the other view looks at it a little differently, and this view looks at the seven heads as a uh, panorama of kingdoms that have occurred in history and that end up, and the ten horns then are ten kings that make up the ten-nation confederacy. Now, you may think, well, there's not a lot of difference. Well, the bottom line is still the same, and that is that when you picture the the dragon with the seven heads and the ten crowns and seven horns, that, that this is talking about its final form of the kingdom. It's how we get there that I'm not sure about. And I thought this was interesting. I pulled this off. There's a, off another slide presentation is you have the four beasts of Daniel. You have the lion in Daniel chapter seven, the, the lion that represents a Babylon. And then you have the lopsided bear that represents the media Persian empire. And then you have the four headed leopard, which represents the Greek empire that after the death of Alexander splits into four uh, kingdoms, all part of the kingdom of Greece. And then you have the rise of the fourth beast, which is the terrible beast, which is pictured here as a, as a Tyrannosaurus with ten horns on his head. But count the heads. Lion is one, bear is two, plus four is six, 
plus the terrible beast at the end is seven. Well, wait a minute. I have never heard that interpretation before, but that's really interesting. And it seems to have some correlation in Revelation chapter 17 because in Revelation chapter 17, it talks about the fact that there are uh, these, the woman who, there, the, the woman who sits astride, that represents the final form of the kingdom, that she sits astride seven, these seven hills that represent five kingdoms that were, one that is, that would be Rome at the time uh, John is writing, and one that will be, that would be uh, Rome at the time of the revived Roman Empire. So you see there's one of these approaches tries to look at these kingdoms through a historical train. The other one just looks at it as the sort of the end form related to Daniel chapter 7. And I've been reading and reading and analyzing and I'm still not sure which which one it is because there's a tremendous amount of intricacy in each of these arguments. And so there's a lot of data to understand. So maybe next week we'll have an answer to this second question. But this time we'll just focus on the first one. Who is the dragon? The dragon is Satan. It's clear from Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. He has various titles in Scripture. He is called Satan or Satan in the Hebrew, which means the accuser the one who brings an accusation, and he's pictured as doing that in passages such as Job 1.7, also Job 2.1, uh, also Zechariah chapter 3. We have him accusing, bringing an accusation against Joshua the high priest. And then, of course, in Revelation 12, verse 9, the word there that is used for the uh, accuser in Revelation 12.9 is an interesting Greek word. It's the word kategoron. I had to spend a little time thinking about that word because it's obviously the root of our English word category. And the idea is that the accuser is someone who is going to list or itemize the accusations. He's going to categorize your faults and flaws and failings. So this is what Satan the accuser does. He is also called the devil or diabolos. In the Greek, that means a slanderer. That's used in a number of passages, but a good one is 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, there's another title for Satan, adversary, the devil, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He brings slanderous accusations against the believer. He's called the evil one in John 17:15, where Jesus said, I do not ask you to, in his high priestly prayer to the Father, he says, I do not ask you to take them, that is the disciples, out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Revelation 12:9, he is the great red dragon that is cast out of heaven in verse 9. In First uh, Peter five eight, the adversary there. This is the Greek word antidikos. Now that's an interesting word. Anti can have that idea of of against, 
opposition, substitution. Uh, dikas is the root for righteousness. We think about dikaio, the verb for justice, uh, justify, dikaiosune, righteousness. This is an adversary, someone who is working uh, in, uh, against justice or in the judicial system. He is uh, t- taking the adversarial position. He's called the ruler of this world by Jesus in John 12:31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he is the ruler of this world and has been ever since he usurped the power from Adam in Genesis chapter 3. So he will not be, uh, he was defeated at the cross, that's what Jesus meant, by now the ruler of this world will be cast out, but he is not finally cast out experientially until the end of the tribulation period. He is also called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. And he is called, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is called the God of this age. One more title, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age. And then in Matthew 4, 3, the tempter. The tempter came and said to him, that is a temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And then in... Uh, John 8:44 he is called a murderer and a liar. Jesus said you are of your father the devil. He was speaking to the Pharisees. I'm sure that they were wondering why he didn't take a course in how to make friends and influence people. Uh he said you're of your father the devil and you want to do the fa- the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So this characterizes Satan. Now, he is the dragon that appears on the scene in the first part of verse uh, 3. And then, let me, then in verse 4, a, we have another statement about him. It says, his tail, now tail usually pictures something about power. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now that is a picture. Let me keep that slide up there for a minute. That is a, uh, a picture of what happens when, let me see here. This is a picture of what happened historically when Satan fell. He influenced a third of the angels in heaven, and throwing them to the earth, he's the one who performs the action. He throws them to the earth. Same verb we'll have in verse 9 where Satan is cast out and they're cast down to the earth. But here the one who performs the action is Satan. The one who performs the action in verse 9 is God. This is when Satan is dispatching the star, a third of the stars of heaven to the earth in order to influence the human race and stop the birth of that child. So that's the focal point of verse 4. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. He, a third of the angels fell, followed him, and he throws them to the earth. Then in verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she she gave birth, he might devour her child. 
And that's the focal point, is that he wants to destroy the child that she's going to bring in the earth to prevent the birth of the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, we're told, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's a very clear statement that this is the Messiah because in Proverbs 2, 9, in a Messianic psalm, God the Father says, says to his son, the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron. That rod of iron terminology identifies this as the Messiah who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension of Christ. So that's just a neat little summary of the history of Israel in giving birth to the seed of Adam, the seed of the woman, the seed of of Abraham, the seed of David, and the one who would uh, come to be our Savior, and the opposition from Satan. Now, what this indicates here, and we'll come back and cover the doctrines in a little more detail, is the importance of understanding that from the fall of man, Satan has declared war against man to stop the birth of the Savior. But when it was clear that it was going to come through the descendants of Abraham, he makes it his, his mission to prevent that from coming about. And so Satan is the originator here of anti-Semitism and all anti-Semitic uh, policies. And so whenever we see anyone who is anti-Semitic or any group that is anti-Semitic as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to stand against that and stand against those who are uh, anti-Israel. Because even though Israel is in rebellion against God now, they are still God's chosen people. They are still the apple of his eye. And he is going to bless those who bless them and curse those who curse them. And, of course, the ultimate blessing came through the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a born a Jew in Bethlehem in order to go to the cross, die for our sins, that we might have eternal life through him. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded of the importance of the of the angelic conflict for history and the hostility that, it, that the devil has for Israel and still has because you have not yet fulfilled your promises to them to bring them into the land. And today his mission is to prevent that, to stop that, and to, if he can possibly destroy all of Israel, all the Jews, before uh, you can fulfill your promise, then he thinks he can win. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we say tonight. Give us a greater appreciation and understanding for your plan in history and how we fit in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.